Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Lynn Miller and Therese Dolan, authors of Salut, France Meets Philadelphia. Our guests today are Therese Dolan and Lynn Miller, and they are the authors of this book, Salute, France Meets Philadelphia. Uh, Therese, we'll start with you. Um, how did this book come about? Well, it came about because both of us are Francophiles. Uh, somebody asked how two Irish people could be Francophiles, but we are. Um, Lynn had written a uh, walking tour of Philadelphia as a longtime member of the Alliance Francaise. And uh, one got me onto the board several years ago. And then after an Alliance board meeting said, why don't we do this? Uh, why don't we redo this little paperback that I had done many years ago for Temple University Press? And he said, I'll do the history and the architecture and you do the art history and the sculpture. So I immediately said yes uh, and, you know, was very glad to jump on and to um, learn more and to also collaborate with him. We were longtime colleagues at Temple University. Lynn, what's your interest in France? Uh, I guess I was born to it. My mother had studied in France. And so from the time I was a very small child, I was aware of things French and fascinated by it. And then I spent my first year of graduate study in a French-speaking school in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, that kind of explains it. So I've been a Francophile forever. Um, love the country, love the language, wish I were better at the language than in fact I am, but uh, that more or less explains it. So I was asked some years ago to become a member of the board of uh, the Alliance Française, as, as Terry has said, and uh, the rest you sort of know. Well, when is it that you started thinking that there was enough of a connection between Philadelphia and Paris to, to merit a book? The, the interesting thing to me, it's not just Paris, it's all of France, but uh, Paris, of course, plays a, a large role. The interesting thing to me from the beginning, as I began to understand this subject, is the enormous variety of influences of France and the French on Philadelphia, from the political and the military, the diplomatic from the time of the Revolutionary War, uh, into the arts, of course, and with lots of other things along the, along the way. One of the things that seems to me is characteristic in this relationship is that even though there are far fewer people of French extraction who settled in the Philadelphia region than are those say who were Irish or German or Italian, the impact of those French people on the region, as we're going to show you a bit as we talk, I think, has been quite considerable and, and very varied from architecture to uh, the, the culinary in terms of restaurants and so forth and a lot else in between. Therese, if you walk around Philadelphia today, what can you point to and say, well, that's influenced by France? Oh, an enormous amount. Um, first of all, architecturally, as Lynn describes in his book, City Hall, which is one of the best examples of Second Empire French architecture, as is the, um, 
the the Joan of Arc, well, the Joan of Arc statue, which was brought by Fremier to Philadelphia, uh, the replica, the uh, the Barry sculpture in which is the center of Rittenhouse Square. So there at the um, certainly the um, the Parkway. I mean, Lynn can speak to this just visually better than I can. I have a chapter on the Rodin Museum and the Barnes Foundation, and I delight in telling people that we have more Renoirs and Cezannes in Philadelphia than France does. We own more of those famous artists. So we're really a mecca for people who really want to study uh, French art, and or any scholar of, of Renoir or Cezanne, Philadelphia is really a mecca too, because our most important works are there. One time, my husband and I were in Bern, Switzerland, and there was a Cezanne uh, show, Cezanne uh, exhibit there. And we walked through the exhibit, and in the very last room, we burst out laughing because there, in black and white photographic reproduction, were the Barnes Foundation Large Bathers and the Philadelphia Museum of Art Large Bathers. And I said to him, "Let's just jet home and see the end of this exhibition." <laughs> I, you know, the end of the exhibition, the culmination was the two major Philadelphia paintings, which could not be lent. Well, we could probably jump around and talk about a lot of different things that are in your book, but since you mentioned the Barnes Foundation, can you explain a little bit for people who are not familiar what it is, how it came to be? Oh, well, Alfred Barnes made his uh, fortune on a uh, on algerol, which was a silver nitrate uh, solution that was put into the, uh, the eyes of babies who were born to mothers with gonorrhea uh, to prevent blindness. And he uh, made a fortune on that, and he, he was not really interested in chemistry. He had always wanted to be a painter and realized he didn't have the talent. So what he did was to then plow his fortune into buying what at that point was very outrageous art, the art of the Impressionists and the Post-Impressionists. And he collected it for his home in Marion which he would not open up to the public. It, it had to actually, it was Annenberg who finally forced in the late 1960s, the opening of the Barnes Foundation to the public. And it was done at that point under very restricted conditions, uh, open only a few days a week with reservation to very few, uh, or else the foundation would be taxed. But it has the most unbelievable collection of um, Matisse, I mean, the, um, the major Matisse paintings of Fauvism are there. And before uh, the woman who took over his museum before he died, Violette de Mazia, would never allow any of the paintings of the Fauvism movement to be reproduced in color. So I was always grateful I could take my students to the barns because to teach Fauvism, which is all about color in black and white, made no sense to me. Could I pick up on uh, Terry's comment about the barns and yes, relate to the parkway? Because, right. uh, as you know, the Barnes Foundation is now and has been for the last, what, 10 to 15 years, located in a gorgeous new building on the parkway. But, of course, it started its life in a building out in Marion, Pennsylvania, on the main line. There was a long court fight uh, to, uh, in effect, break the will and permit the collection to be moved to Center City, Philadelphia. The object behind moving it to Center City, of course, was this is where the action is in terms of other museums where tourists congregate and so forth. And the parkway itself, as Terry has already pointed out, is as French as anything can be. Anyone who has ever 
looked or strolled down the Champs Elysees in Paris, and then come to the Parkway, comes to the Parkway, has to see the resemblance instantly. It was quite intentional because the designers of the Parkway were two French uh, architects, a landscape architect named Jacques Grébert, and the architect, the principal architect, uh, Paul Philippe Cré, both of whom lived in Philadelphia for some time and collaborated in creating the parkway that we see today. The parkway idea had been bouncing about since the end of the Civil War because the city fathers at that point understood that they had created this gorgeous great big park out there along the Schuylkill, but it wasn't very handily connected to Center City. And so they kept thinking, shouldn't we create some kind of major boulevard to connect downtown to the park? The, this is the ultimate result. It was completed uh, just at the end of World War I uh, and has been possibly the most iconic uh, landscape in Philadelphia ever since. So it's French through and through, both in conception and in intent. The architects were very clear in saying, uh, this is our tribute to Philadelphia from Paris. It's partly a thank you for your help in the war, by the way. You mentioned Paul Cret, and you, you say in your book he was the architect of uh, the, the Saint Cathedral of St. Peter and Paul? Is that uh, right? No. No, that's not correct. That, that architect was oh, another Le, Le Brun. A French descent, who is Napoleon Lebrun, uh, who actually Sorry. was born in the United States, but he was the son, the child of the, the man who was Napoleon's minister to the United States. Um, the son, Napoleon Lebrun, became an architect at a very early age and spent his entire career in Philadelphia and New York. He designed both the, or was the principal architect, uh, for the Cathedral of Saints Peter and Paul on the Parkway, and also another iconic building in Philadelphia, the Academy of Music, built in 1857. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Lynn, you handled the history part of the book. When you, when you go back to the early colonial days, was there much back and forth between Philadelphia and France then? You, you bet there was. Uh, don't forget, as every school child should know, um, France was our first ally in the Revolutionary War. It was critically important, the insurgents knew, uh, to gain some support, whatever support they could from European powers, because after all, uh, this group of colonists was a small and struggling bunch without any real experience in diplomacy or warfare. And uh, Benjamin Franklin, Philadelphia's own, was sent at the age of 70 uh, by the Continental Congress as their minister, their, uh, their connection, their liaison to the government of Louis XVI in Paris. And Franklin spent the next uh, decade about of his life in France uh, doing an unimaginable job of persuading the French to support the American cause. Uh, and support it, they did. They supported it, of course, financially. They sent a large number of troops, several thousand, um, under the command of um, Rochambeau uh, to assist Washington in the fight. And as a result of that, we have from a very early day, French heroes like the Marquis de Lafayette, uh, known just as much in America as in France for his valor and for his contribution to the revolutionary cause. Uh, Lafayette, by the way, became almost immediately 
like a, an adopted son of uh, George Washington. Washington was childless. Lafayette was only 19 years old and an orphan when he came to the US. He was married at that point, but he had never known his father who'd been killed in the Seven Years' War by, guess who, the English, the mortal enemy at that point of France. So from a pure a geopolitical standpoint, it made sense for the French to assist the rebels. Uh, but it was also ironic, wasn't it, that the world's last great absolute monarch, Louis XVI, who would soon lose his head, uh, became the great protector and supplier of assistance to this revolutionary democratic republican uh, movement. When Benjamin Franklin arrived in Paris, how was he perceived by the French? Well, he oh. was perceived as just an amazing object of curiosity and, I must say, affection. Franklin seems to have been a wonderfully humane and, uh, what should I say, sociable individual. He was already one of the famous, most famous men in the world by the time he arrived in Paris because his experiments with electricity were known on the part of education, educated people the world over. So he then played up his fame uh, by dressing in what he thought looked like a kind of frontier out, outskit, outfit uh, with a, a, a coonskin or some kind of fur cap and uh, wearing his hair shoulder length and natural, no wigs for him at that point. So he was lionized. He was pursued by the rich and the famous, and he was very popular. And he knew how to use that fame to, um, well, to do the American cause some good. There's no question that he was an amazing diplomat and almost single-handedly responsible for the, the French assistance to the American cause and the French assistance to the American cause, I would argue, is what made it successful. We would never have achieved our independence had it not been for what I've just described. And Franklin was so adored by the French that uh, at one salon there were three famous sculptors who had done images of him. And one of them is at the Philadelphia Museum of Art by Oudon, uh, the, um, the American sculptor. And um, when Oudon was, that, that bust of uh, Franklin became so famous that he was asked to do a bust, uh, to do an equestrian statue of George Washington. And he said, well, I can't do that from, unless I see him, I need to make a plaster mask of him. And so Peel was commissioned to do a painting, a full length painting of him. But um, so, so, Volt so Udon actually came to Philadelphia and stayed in Philadelphia. By the way, excuse me, Terry, he came on the same ship that carried Franklin. Benjamin Franklin home after That's his right. long- Yeah, so they, they were ship partners together, yeah. yes. So Franklin had a lot to do with arranging for Udon's yes. travels, yes. Right, so Udon was really the first French, uh, first French artist to visit America, and he went out to um, Mount Vernon to do a, um, a, a mask of, of, of George Washington. And while he was lying and being, uh, the, the, uh, the plaster was around his face, two feathers were put up his nose so that he could breathe. And his, grand, his uh, uh, you know, a, a child walked into the room and thought he, he had died. 
so and was quite horrified. But the um, the statue then became the one that is at the Capitol in Richmond, Virginia, a replica of which is in Washington Square Park, right right outside of uh, Lynn's window, which is why I think he you know so he could see it every day. And I think that again is part of the inspiration for for this. But Franklin and Jefferson were very familiar with the arts and they were drawn by people over there. So when they came back to America, they knew that the new colonies, that the new country needed symbols, visual symbols of uh, people. And so portraiture was the major thing at the beginning of the, um, the, the colonial period. And so artists began to, the, they had no indigenous training here in America. There was, everything was really crafts and very primitive kind of portraits. So uh, Peel and others went to England, Charles Wilson Peel, who had 16 children, most of whom he named after artists. And he went to England and came back and began to paint portraits, uh, for example, of the first ambassadors. And he was a big Francophile. He was of Huguenot descendants and he fought with Washington out at Valley Forge. So, you know, the French influence and, and then so he he modeled many of his works after, for example, his uh, probably one of the most famous paintings in uh, in America is Peel's in his museum, where he is opening up a curtain to show uh, the uh, the collection of busts and scientific aspects. Peel was very much a product of the French Enlightenment. And uh, there is a French print that is very similar to what he did. So he relied, he, he was fluent in French and loved to talk French to the French. So when Lafayette came, he was very fond of, of practicing his French on him. How good his French was, I don't know. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the accent. But then he sent his son over to France. His son wanted to, uh, Raphael Peel, uh, went over to, uh, to France and brought back many paintings. Uh, Lynn, you write about um, the the influences in the the philosophy of the uh, American Revolution, and a lot of it is is uh, focused. When when we went to school, we were always taught about John Locke being the big influence. But you write that that some French philosophers were heavily influential in the likes of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Absolutely, the so-called philosophes, uh, the men of the Enlightenment in France, who, by the way deeply revered John Locke. Locke was a generation older, uh, but people like Voltaire, Rousseau, Condorcet, those are, and Montesquieu, those are among the, the, the main French thinkers uh, who took a great deal of inspiration from John Locke and then added to it. And they are exactly the men whose work was read by the founders, our founders, uh, in the library at Carpenter's Hall, where the First Continental Congress met. Uh, were copies of some of the important works of those individuals. We know, because they said so, that Washington, Jefferson, and certainly Madison poured over those volumes uh, and made, uh, made absolutely no excuses for uh, incorporating their ideas into such documents as the Declaration of Independence written by Jefferson, and then uh, several years later, Madison being the principal author of our Constitution. So unquestionably, the line from Locke to the uh, philosophe in France to our founders is absolutely direct and clear and profound. There is nothing else in the thinking of these individuals as it 
went into our founding documents that is as important as that. There are quite a few names in your book uh, of people who who will pop up when uh, when traveling around Pennsylvania. Like you, you mentioned the Chevalier de la Luzerne. Who oh, was yeah. he? And that's where Luzerne County got its name. That's where Luzerne County got its name. He was, in fact, the second of the French ministers appointed uh, to the United, the new United States after we'd achieved their independence. The first was uh, another aristocrat named Gerard, who uh, got ill fairly soon, within a year, as I recall, of his appointment and had to be had to return to France. And he was replaced by the Chevalier La Luzerne, uh, who was obviously a sociable fellow, a great big hearty man. Um, his, um, leg, uh, let's see, the place where he lived, whatever we call that, it was not an embassy at that point, um, was directly across the street, catacorner, from the northwest corner of Independence Hall. It's where there is a Wells Fargo bank uh, today at the corner of Chestnut and Sixth Street. So he couldn't have been closer to the seat of government. Uh, he entertained a good deal. He was present for all the major occasions. And um, OK, he, that's Luzerne for you. He was clearly important in his period in the US. Somebody else you want to ask me about? Well, uh, Andre Michaud. If you drive around Gettysburg, okay. you'll find Michaud State Forest. Yes, you do. And you find actually a Michaud Grove in Fairmount Park as well. Michaud was um, the botanist who was principally responsible for turning Washington Square into a park, a real park. His, I should say he first traveled with his father, also Andre Michaud, a botanist, all over the United States at the behest of Louis XVI. So going back before the French Revolution, a few years, um, the father and the young son traveled in order to understand something about American uh, plants, uh, plant life, and exporting some of the same back to, to France. Years later, we come now to about 1825-1830, the son, now himself a distinguished botanist, uh, toward the United States and is brought to Philadelphia to advise on the planting of Washington Square. Remember that Washington Square, like Logan and Franklin uh, and one of my Leo Rittenhouse Square, uh, were all designed, I should say, put on the, on the map by uh, uh, Penn himself, William Penn, when he laid out the city, uh, placed those four squares in each of the four quadrants of his planned city. So before there was a city, there were plans for these parks. Then for about the next 150 years, <clears throat> the parks had varied uses. They were not exactly parks. They were uh, common grounds for grazing animals in some cases. Washington Square became a burial ground for those who died during the revolution, the military in particular, and prisoners from the Walnut Street Prison, which was on the corner of Walnut at Sixth uh, Street. Um, so it was a kind of unkempt area, uh, freed black people who died, sometimes at other paupers were buried there. So it's not until the 1820s that the city fathers conclude it's time to turn this into a proper park. And at that point, it was all landscape. And as I say, Michaud is the man who designed or set out and decided upon the original plantings. One little interesting footnote is that a uh, hundred years later, almost at least 95 years later, 
a kind of survey was made of the trees in Washington Square, and some huge percentage were the original trees still surviving after that length of time. Um, I don't suppose any of them has survived to the present, but if you know Washington Square, you know that it has many very beautiful, very old trees, as well as, of course, a good many that have been planted more recently. Another name is Stephen Girard. Stephen Girard is a name that all Philadelphians uh, come to know, uh, both because of a, of a street name for him and more importantly, a school, a school originally for orphan children, orphan boys, I should say, originally, now co-educational. Stephen Girard arrived in Philadelphia in that um, pregnant year of 1776. He was 26 years old and a seaman. He sailed his own ship, merchant ship, tried to go into New York Harbor only to discover that the Brits had it blockaded. So he sailed up Delaware Bay instead and came to Philadelphia, looked around, decided he liked the city. It was, after all, the most important and cosmopolitan city in North America at the time. And he stayed the rest of his long life. He quickly became one of the nation's richest citizens, both from his shipping and then later banking. And of course, he became perhaps the greatest philanthropist in Philadelphia's history. His legacy remains both in Girard College, uh, which he called for in his will, and in center city property that is still controlled by the Girard Trust. Um, so Girard was Philadelphia's most eminent citizen from the standpoint of his wealth and influence for a good long period until his death in 1850. Therese, you mentioned how uh, uh, artists would travel from Philadelphia to Paris or to, or to other places in France to get their education in art. Uh, was, that, was that a trickle or was it sort of common if you wanted to be an artist you had to spend time in France? Well, it actually went at the beginning, you had to go to England and study with Benjamin West, who became the second president of the Royal Academy. And uh, but then uh, artists began to see that the, the only three collections after Napoleon's raiding of uh, art treasures, the only three collections that were open in, in Europe to see the great treasures of the old masters were Dresden, Florence and uh, and and Paris. The, the Louvre, which was then called the Musée Napoléon. And so it was really Raphael Peel who went over. And after he came back, he and his father and several others founded the first, uh, first official art school, which became the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, which is on North Broad Street. And if you were serious about becoming an artist, that's where you studied. And many of the professors there, um, in, in, in Anschutz being one of them, would um, would promote the idea of studying in France at the it because there you could see the works the uh, the French had an annual salon which meant that the government could show you all the works it came from just a room in the Louvre salon just meaning room and uh, it was a government sponsored exhibition that was held annually sometimes semi-annually of the most approved artworks by the government and that's where the marketing of art became. The aristocrats bought the art and the upper middle class also bought the art. Bought the art. There were also very, uh, very good prizes for the artists. Uh, sometimes 100,000 francs, which was inconceivable in America. 
So the artists at the mid-century, when France became, as Walter Benjamin says, the capital of the 19th century, the art world really centered on Paris. That was true for music as well as everything else. I mean, the opera, if you wanted to succeed in opera, you went to Paris. I mean, Verdi and Rossini and Wagner, all of them wanted to premiere their works in Paris because it was the cultural center of Europe during the 19th century. So Thomas Aikens, in the middle of the 19th century, spent four years in Paris studying with uh, Jean-Louis Jérôme, who was an academic master, and came back and created, you know, really some magnificent works of art. Uh, one of the things I found interesting in um, researching was his portrait of Thomas Gross, the Gross Clinic, uh, which is now co-owned by the uh, Philadelphia Museum of Art and the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, thanks to the generosity of the Philadelphia public who raised money so that it wouldn't go to Arkansas. It's one of the great treasures of Philadelphia. And Samuel Gross, Dr. Gross, was fluent in French. He earned money as a medical student by translating uh, works from of uh, French surgeons into English, uh, and he and and the um, he used to talk about the the founder of Jefferson Hospital, also trained in Paris, and used to call the French surgeons his friends. So the French influence was very prominent, and people such as Mary Cassatt and Henry Asawatanner went over to Paris to study and actually remained there because they found that there were not the same prejudices against women and against blacks that existed here in America. A woman could not study at the major art school, the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris until 1897, and also could not at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts where they both initially trained. They, uh, of course, Tanner had to be admitted by special permission because he was black. So the other students had to vote to agree to admit him. And Mary Cassatt, as a woman, could not study from the nude. All of the statues that were at the Pennsylvania Academy, about which the, uh, the students sketched, had to have fig leaves on them. And only the men were allowed to sketch from the, uh, the nude figure. So Mary Cassatt joined together with a few friends, and they got a room, and they themselves sketched from each other. Uh, so that they could learn anatomy, which was at the basis of learning how to paint the human figure. How were Mary Cassatt and Henry Oswa Tanner received in uh, Paris? Very well, actually. Well, Mary Cassatt, you know, she came from a very wealthy family, um, and uh, her, her father was furious at her, did not want her to become an artist, did not support her, and said, if you want to do this, you have to earn money on your own. So she exhibited at the Salon. She tried to exhibit at the Salon. And when her works were refused, Edgar Degas, the great Impressionist painter, invited her to become a member of the Impressionist movement. And so from 1876 on, she was, uh, she, along with Beth Morisot, they were open to women painting. And they, uh, she became a member of the French Impressionist artist, uh, works. And her work sold very well over there. And Tanner became a huge success over in Paris. Because, and he said, you know, they don't look at my, my skin. I'm just a person. I'm an American artist who happens to be black. And when his Daniel in the lion's den won a prize and was bought by the French government, the America, of course, celebrated him in the American newspapers. But they didn't have a picture of him. So they got a picture of a black dock worker and said that this was, this was Tanner. 
and he said, you know, that's the way that he said over here in Paris and in France, my color doesn't matter. I am an American artist who happens to be black. Did he stay? Where, did he stay in France or did he move back to the U.S.? No, he stayed in France. He visited Mary Cassatt. She she became seasick. She had terrible seasickness, so she did not come back very often. Uh, but the Pennsylvania Academy always uh, exhibited their works and gave them honors. They uh, the the famous uh, Temple Prize, for example, which was the first prize, and Mary Cassatt turned them down when when Aikens got. Um, a prize from the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. He took the medal, he went to the mint and immediately had it melted down because he was so angry because he had gotten fired from the Pennsylvania Academy for undraping a male nude in front of female students. And that was the final straw. He, because he was trained in France where the nude was revered. I mean, you know, think of Michelangelo, think of the, the Renaissance artists. I mean, the uh, Michelangelo's Last Judgment now has a loincloth over the the genitalia of Christ. However, that was a um, that was painted by Daniel de Volterra, not by Michelangelo. And when the when the um, the Sistine Ceiling Chapel was restored, there was great controversy about should we restore it to its initial um, you know the way that Michelangelo painted it. There's a very interesting book by Leo Steinberg who taught at the University of Pennsylvania and was one of the first uh, winners of the uh, MacArthur Genius Award called The Sexuality of Christ. And what he did was to show how the, 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 the pride in the, the male body that Christ was made in the image of God. He was like God and like, all, he was like man in all things except sin. And so you often find the virgin pointing at the genitalia. And this was a European tradition that was passed on, that the nude was the ideal figure in art because it was made by God. This was nature. When, when Americans started arriving, American art students started arriving in Paris, were they taken seriously or were they thought of as kind of bumpkins? Well, they, they had a hard time getting into the Ecole des Beaux-Arts. Hen Robert Henry, who became um, an influential 20th century painter, uh, um, failed the exam three times. And he was always torn between being an academic painter and being uh, a more modern painter, more avant-garde painter. So they could not, uh, Americans could not study at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts very easily. There was a place called the Académie Julien, where most Americans were accepted. And that's where they could learn how to paint. And then they, what they wanted to do was to go to the annual salons and be part of, you know, uh, spend their time sketching in the, uh, the Louvre and have access to the great treasures of Europe. Lynn, I want to get back to you and talk about the history a little bit. When the, uh, when the French Revolution came about and the, the American government was in Philadelphia, there, there was a kind of a, a split in Washington's government over who to support, right? Well, yes, there was. I'm, I'm glad to be able to say a few words about Philadelphia at the time of the French Revolution. Uh, all right, start with Washington's cabinet. Jefferson was his Secretary of State. Hamilton was his Secretary of the Treasury. They were men who had known each other for a long time. They were on opposite sides with regard to the, the French Revolution. Well, lots of people were on different sides as the revolution progressed because you will remember that it began as a project that was very much supported by enlightened, educated aristocrats in France, people like Lafayette, who was part of the initial revolutionary group. But those people were fairly quickly pushed aside as too moderate 
too, too many ties to the old regime uh, to be acceptable. And so the revolutionaries became, the, the revolution itself came to be taken over by those who were more and more radical, ending, of course, with a period that we know of as the terror. Uh, we associate it with Robespierre. And it got very violent, as you know, with uh, lots of executions at the guillotine. Now, before all it got to that point, there was nonetheless a division between the Hamiltonians and the Jeffersonians in the United States. Uh, Jeffersonians generally coming to be known within a generation as the Democratic Republicans or Democrats. And the um, Hamiltonians supported the Federalist Party. So that was the division. Uh, they worked it out, but with some difficulty. John Adams, when as the second president of the United States and a Federalist, was opposed generally to the French Revolution. Um, and he took some measures as the revolution got more and more radical. They came very close to bringing the United States uh, to an act of war, to entering a war with France. We, in fact, call it in history the Quasi War because they never declared it, it turned into a shooting match briefly. Uh, now, that all eventually came to an end uh, once Napoleon came to power, declared the revolution at an end, and then set, set out on his project, which was, of course, rather different from that that the revolutionaries had had. Um, how did, how did Marquis period, de Lafayette survive the, the French Revolution and the terror? Great difficulty, great difficulty. Lafayette was originally uh, one of the officials in the revolution. As I say, he was pushed aside. And he tried then, when he realized the jig was up, he tried to make his way back to America. Uh, he regarded himself at this point as as much an American as a Frenchman. But he didn't make it. And he was captured and handed over to the Austrian Empire, the Austrian government, who had him incarcerated. He was in prison for the next, I think, five years. Um, he managed to survive, just barely. Uh, which was his luck. And of course, he went on, he lived a long life. He went on to support the bourgeois revolution of 1828 and uh, survived to support somewhat more uh, Republican causes in France. But his reputation was, uh, shall I say, tarnished in France by those who were the more radical revolutionaries. And he is clearly much more a hero today in America than he is in France. He's not despised in France, but he's not regarded with the same kind of admiration and respect. Uh, let, let me say one more thing about Philadelphia during the period of the French Revolution, because this is a kind, of, a kind of an important social matter. I've already indicated that a great many uh, French, especially those high-born French people, educated, very sympathetic to the notion of creating a much more liberal Republic in France found themselves all in serious trouble. And those who escaped the, the guillotine tried to flee when they could. A great many of them found their way to Philadelphia in that same decade, 1790 to 1800, when Philadelphia was the capital of the new United States. It's estimated that in that decade, something like 10% of the residents of Philadelphia were in fact these French expats. Uh, not all of them high-born, of course, but many of them were. And because they were, they tended to uh, receive a, a fair amount of social respect by Philadelphia's leading citizens. So they left a mark. 
at the same time, don't forget, we had accompanying the revolution in France, a revolution in the French territory that today we know as Haiti, then called Saint-Domingue, in which the blacks who had been slaves, mostly enslaved in Haiti, rose up against their French masters and created a republic uh, which survives to this day, the first uh, republic uh, led and uh, created by black people any place in the world. Uh, some of the French landowners in Haiti also came to Philadelphia at about that time seeking refuge. So it was, Philadelphia was not only an important city anyway, but it was important as a place of refuge, sort of perpetuating the whole notion of Philadelphia as a tolerant place that had been William Penn's whole idea from the beginning. There was also apparently some thought of when Napoleon had his downfall of having him exiled to Philadelphia? There was. Uh, I don't think it was ever seriously entertained by Napoleon himself. Well, that, that, that may be, that may be uh, an exaggeration because it is true that his brother Joseph uh, came to Philadelphia and spent most of the next 30 years in and around this city. Uh, he did, in fact, uh, expect or hope that his brother Napoleon would come too. But Napoleon decided to take his chances uh, with the British government, and you know how that ended. Um, he, he wound up on, on Elba, and um, uh, he was, that's of course the, the way his life ended. But uh, Joseph was certainly here and was an important force in Philadelphia area society for, as I say, about the next 30 years. So Joseph came to stay in Pennsylvania? He built a house uh, in Port, uh, Point Breeze, New Jersey, right across the river from um, essentially where William Penn's Pensbury Manor stood and stands again today in reproduction. Uh, he simply bought the estate, rebuilt a house there, entertained there, built a great art collection there. And here's a little footnote that's, I think, of interest to your listeners. Uh, when Joseph Bonaparte left the U.S. for the last time, he gave a good bit of his collection, his art collection, to a man who by this time had become one of his close friends, a man who was a doctor in the area. Years later, that doctor in his will left that collection from Francis, from Joseph Bonaparte to the Athenaeum of Philadelphia, where it is still on display. You can see Napoleon's death mask there. Uh, you can see a beautiful marble um, depiction of, an, of Napoleon's sister Pauline, semi-nude, reclining on a couch. All this is in marble. And you can see any number of other things. Joseph had two daughters who lived with him a good deal of the time in um, uh, Point, yes, in Point Breeze. And uh, they became painters and in fact were quite good painters. Several of their paintings are in that Athenaeum collection. It is there for the public to see. Therese, you have a chapter on the Pennsylvania Impressionists. For people who yes. are not familiar with that term, who are the Pennsylvania Impressionists? Well, the major collection of, of the Pennsylvania Impressionists is at the Michener Museum in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. And they were a group of painters, who, most of whom had studied in France and who came back to America. And they wanted to, they were part of the American Impressionist movement. In 1870, 1876, 
uh, I'm sorry, 1886, which was the end of the Impressionist movement in France. Most of the artists then separated, went off with art dealers. But an art dealer in Paris, Durand Ruel, brought Impressionism to America. And people, uh, people of wealth had, were, buying impression, were buying French art, mostly the Barbizon paintings of cows and uh, rural scenes of Corot and Rousseau and uh, Dupre, etc. And so the Pennsylvania Impressionists settled in New Hope, Pennsylvania, around um, Sutter's Mill, and uh, they began to create a little school uh, among themselves. And their work was derived from Impressionism, but really had a very American mark to it. They um, perpetuated the Impressionist broken brushstroke, which was the hallmark of Impressionism, breaking away from the very finely painted academic painting of um, that the French Academy um, which against which the Impressionists rebelled, uh, that they broke away from that and adapted the, the brushwork of Pissarro and Monet and Renoir and began to exhibit their works. Uh, they fall in sort of Brian Peterson, who is was a, a, really the major scholar of Pennsylvania Impressionism and was a curator, the Lenfest curator at the Merchner Museum, has written many marvelous books. Uh, he is really the fount of all um, information on the Pennsylvania Impressionists, and their works are very beautiful. Philadelphia Museum of Art uh, shares possession of one of Daniel Garber's works with the Michener Museum, where they are uh, together on the, um, you know, part of, sometimes you can see it at um, the Michener Museum in Doylestown, and sometimes at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And that is of Garber's daughter, Tannis, a very, very beautiful painting. And Garber became one of the most popular of the Pennsylvania Impressionists and was a longtime teacher at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. You have a couple of examples in your book uh, pairing paintings by Pennsylvania Impressionists with paintings by French Impressionists. This is Paul right. Cezanne compared to Edward Redfield and uh, Edward Redfield compared to Camille Pizarro. Were they, were they students of theirs or were they copying them? And they, they weren't students of them. I mean, they visited with Monet. Uh, several of them had visited with Monet. They knew their work when they went over there to, uh, to uh, Paris to study. Uh, and to, you know, to paint. They uh, became familiar with their work and they rejected the work of the, the Salon painters. The Salon uh, art was really in decline at the end of the 19th century after the rebellious artists such as Courbet, Gustave Courbet and Edouard Manet had really changed the face of, uh, of art. And when the Impressionists broke away, they, they broke away. Modern art is really said to begin with Edward Manet's uh, Luncheon on the Grass, the Salon des Refusés in 1863, when 4,000 painters had gotten their works rejected from the Salon. And there was such a hue and cry in France that Napoleon III set up a separate exhibit, ex exhibition called the Salon des Refusés. And that was connected to the annual Salon, it was only by a turnstile. 
And um, there was a, a kind of gamble. If you wanted to exhibit at the Salon des Refusés, um, you were in with a lot of people that you knew that would be rejected, but it was also a way to get your work shown, which was very difficult since there wasn't the kind of gallery system that there was now. Or So you, you know, artists would show in their studio, but their studios were often very small and did not bring a lot of people to them. So art began to change with the, the, the luncheon on the grass that Manet painted. And uh, they broke away that what we find is that modernism really begins uh, to as a rejection of the academic painting of the Ecole des Beaux-Arts and the kind of, and this happens in America too, with Henry and Glackens uh, that I write about later on in that chapter. And this is the same with the Pennsylvania Impressionists is that they did not embrace the academic painting of the, of the Salon. Uh, we see the real struggle. I have an entire chapter devoted to Aikens because he's really kind of the breaking point uh, between uh, academics, academicism and, and realism in the 19th century. In the time we have left, I want to just bring up a couple other names that come up in your book and get you to talk about them a little bit. One, uh, and I'm not sure which of you would respond to this one, Pierre L'Enfant, usually thought of as the oh, uh, person who designed Washington, D.C. What was his Philadelphia connection? I'll take a crack at that. Um, yes, Pierre L'Enfant was came with the French Expeditionary Force in the Revolution. That's how he got here as a young man. Uh, he was in New York for a time, uh, trying to ply his trade as an architect, and then in Philadelphia. His principal connection in Philadelphia was through Philadelphia's richest citizen, Robert Morris, uh, who wanted to build a grand mansion in the city, and he hired L'Enfant to do that. The mansion was designed to fill the block, that is, the estate was, from 11th to 12th Street, Walnut to Chestnut Street. If you can sort of picture that, you know that it is the heart of Center City today. It was in uh, that time, uh, of course, very much in the city, but at the kind of western edge of the business district, it was still largely residential. And Morris acquired the entire block for his grand estate. Well, L'Enfant came up with a very grand design and they started to build. Then problems developed between uh, the architect and the, uh, the boss. Uh, Morris himself, uh, typically about finances. L'Enfant seems to have had forever grander ideas about what to do with the house. Well, grander ideas, of course, cost more. And Morris eventually got um, apparently quite fed up with uh, L'Enfant's demands. Then add to that the fact that after the house was maybe halfway or more complete, Morris himself found, found himself in trouble. He overextended his, uh, uh, his buying of Western land and went completely bankrupt. As a result, he was thrown into debtor's prison, that wonderful invention of the period in which when you can't pay your bills, you're put in prison to make sure you can't pay your bills. And that's what happened to poor Morris. So he was imprisoned, de debtor's prison for several years. That, of course, put an end to the building of the grand house. And um, L'Enfant knew that immediately. The house, by the way, soon came to be known in Philadelphia as Morris's Folly. And it stood there half finished, hoping for a buyer uh, for another 10 years or so. Uh, and finally was demolished 
and the land was sold for the price of the land. Um, the rest, you know, it did not remain as one parcel at all. L'Enfant then moved on. He seems to have been a somewhat um, irascible fellow uh, because he had arguments with lots of the people around him. But he did come to the attention of George Washington, the new, new president of the United States, at exactly the point that a new capital district, a grand capital district, was to be built on the Potomac River down in Virginia. And Washington hired him. Washington seems to have remained <clears throat> as his principal supporter um, while, the, while the, the district was being constructed. L'Enfant's plan for the district for Washington, D.C., is still highly recognizable in, in the district today. Uh, it formed the basis for almost everything that was developed thereafter. It has, again, that very French influence of diagonal wide boulevards with sweeping vistas, like we got on the parkway in Philadelphia. But eventually, as I say, everyone but Washington got tired of L'Enfant. And although L'Enfant insisted that he, got, that he simply quit, he'd had enough and he quit, the record indicates he probably was fired. Um, he went into a serious decline. And by the time of his death, he was semi-unknown, uh, not until a whole century and more had passed did a then French minister to the United States early in the 20th century begin to look at the fate of Pierre L'Enfant and conclude that the man really had made a major contribution and that his memory should be respected. At that point, uh, we began to get a, a renewed interest in L'Enfant uh, and the rest, I think you know, L'Enfant's name is very prominent of Washington, D.C. today, but that is thanks to the intervention of a French diplomat back in about 1900, 1910. Well, we just have a couple of minutes left. I want to ask you each, uh, just to wrap up, you're, you're both self-admitted uh, Francophiles, and if, you, uh, if someone is watching this and they want to go to Philadelphia and walk around and look at sites that are French-influenced, uh, where should they go? Uh, Therese, we'll start with you. Well, I think, first of all, the uh, Philadelphia Museum of Art, which looks over the parkway, uh, which was influenced, of course, as Lynn has, has uh, beautifully detailed in his photographs in his book and also in his writings, that this is the most French part of uh, Philadelphia. And you have the, um, the, the buildings along the parkway, which are built and modeled after French buildings. And then go inside, look at the wonderful collection of French art, then go down the parkway, go to the Rodin Museum. You will see uh, where Massbaum, who was the founder of uh, the, the movie theaters, and who established the Rodin Museum. We have the largest collection of Rodin uh, sculptures outside of Paris and the Barnes Foundation, which is right next to the, the Rodin Museum. And you will be deeply steeped in, in the, um, the French culture of Philadelphia. And then we also have the French section, Lynn writes about in the last chapter, uh, bringing it up to the present, uh, the, the French aspect of Philadelphia in the restaurants and in the French sector of Philadelphia. And Lynn, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Sure, uh, that French quarter, as it's called on some signs, just north of Rittenhouse Square uh, was created oh, 20 or so years ago as a way of recognizing 
that the district was full of French restaurants, a French hotel, French-owned hotel, uh, et cetera. And that remains the case today. But right next to that French quarter, or perhaps as a part of it, depending on how you define it, look at Rittenhouse Square itself, because uh, that was actually redesigned about 1910 by the same man, Paul-Philippe Cray, who designed the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. And the French Beaux-Arts look, the architectural look, is very much present in the way Rittenhouse Square looks today. Uh, admire it, and you will be admiring a piece of uh, architecture, that uh, landscape architecture, that very closely is very closely modeled on that of the Beaux-Arts tradition in France. And finally, speaking of things you can see, we've already commented on the Oudon uh, statue of George Washington in Washington Square. Uh, but start with the trees uh, planted by a Frenchman way back in 1830, and then that, that beautiful uh, sculpture by Oudon of Washington standing in front of the tomb of the unknown soldier of the American Revolution. Those are just a few of the things, but they are all visual and easy to see in Philadelphia. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Therese Dolan and Lynn Miller, and they are the authors of this book, Salute, France Meets Philadelphia. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.